When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Neil Ferguson on the six killer apps of Western civilization. This talk took place on the 28th of February 2011, Akadogan Hall in London. Ladies and gentlemen, one has an overwhelming desire to stammer these days. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm not going to do that again. I just couldn't resist it after last night's delightful Grand Slam by the makers of the King's Speech. I'm going to talk to you tonight about a more modest production than that great movie, about Civilization, a a television series that will uh, begin uh, next Sunday on Channel 4 at 8 p.m., and and the accompanying book, which will be published this week by Penguin. Now, Civilization is is actually a a French word. Uh, Dr. Johnson refused to admit it, to his dictionary, he told Boswell he would allow civility, but not civilization, sir. And yet we know what civilization means. At least we assume we know. I was five years old when Kenneth Clark's serious civilization was broadcast on the BBC. I think the book of the series may have been the first history book I ever held in my hands. I think my parents who are here tonight can confirm that. And I remember being mightily impressed to discover that civilization was the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But what I want to suggest to you this evening is that it's more than that, and also less than that. There are prosaic aspects to civilization about which 
Kenneth Clark, great art historian that he was, said very little indeed. And I'm going to emphasize, partly because I am by training an economic historian, some of those more prosaic, but perhaps ultimately more important things than beautiful art. You, you might say that I am that man who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. But I'll try and prove you wrong on that. I'm going to show you some pictures um, which I hope will illustrate, apart from anything else, what a visual feast uh, the series is, and the book too, which has some beautiful pictures. Um, And I hope that you'll forgive me if every now and then I'm just a little nerdy. And you'll see the significance of the word nerdy in just a minute. I want to take you back 600 years. I want to take you back to a time when the West, let's just for now think of Europe, and particularly this part of Europe, was a backwater. When the population of London was barely 50,000, and it was a rather muddy, smelly little town ravaged by plague and poverty and periodic, almost indeed incessant, war. It's very important to remember that for a really quite long period of time, between the fall of the Roman Empire in the West in the 5th century and the later 15th century, for about a millennium, what we think of as the West, Europe was really not the epicenter of human civilization. Far from it. It was the provinces. It was the Chinese who led. Go to China today. Go to see what remains of the old imperial Grand Canal. And you'll be stunned by the exquisite architectural beauty uh, of a bridge like this. The precious belt bridge near Suzhou is just one of many wonders uh, of medieval China. When Marco Polo, who, remember, was a Venetian, saw the Chinese Grand Canal, he was thunderstruck because it really was grand in a way that Venice's simply wasn't. You'll already have inferred from my accent that I am a Scotsman. And the Scots have, among their many proud claims, uh, the claim to have invented the game of golf. This is incorrect. Like a great many other things, gunpowder, paper, fireworks, indeed explosives, golf was in fact invented by the Chinese. And the second painting that you see here from the Song Dynasty uh, is actually a Chinese game of golf. It has all the essentials of the game, clubs, little holes, uh, with little poles in them. There was nothing as advanced as golf in medieval Britain. In the period I'm talking about, up to the end of the 15th century, By far the biggest cities in the world 
were not European. In a top 10 by population uh, from 1500, only Paris features and it's near the bottom of the league. Beijing at that time was by far the largest city in the world. Why do I tell you this? Because cities are, after all, the very essence of civilization, as the Latin root of the word implies. And cities are, in many ways, the heroes of this story. After 1500, that changed. After 1500, ladies and gentlemen, the world radically shifted. It's economic, it's political, it's demographic balance. By 1900, the biggest cities in the world were overwhelmingly Western. And the biggest of all was the city we find ourselves in this evening. London, which had been an insignificant speck by the standards of the great Oriental empires, was the great metropolis of the world of 1900. This was part of what economic historians, since Kenneth Pomerantz, have called the Great Divergence. And to help you understand what I mean by the Great Divergence, here's my first rather nerdy slide. What this slide does is it takes two ratios and it plots them uh, on a time axis from 1500 to the late 1970s, in fact, to 1978. The first ratio is the ratio of British to Indian per capita GDP, which is the red line. The blue line is the ratio uh, of United States to Chinese per capita GDP. For those of you who hate economics, I'm really sorry, but it kind of matters. GDP, gross domestic product, divided by population, gets you the per capita GDP. At the beginning of the period, as you can see, there's really nothing significant to differentiate the West from the rest, and in particular from the East. In fact, in 1500, before the settlement of North America, it was clearly a poorer society than China. From 1500 onwards, until the late 1970s, the story of world economic history is very clear. Relentlessly, a gap opened up and widened with every passing century between the West and the rest, until, even allowing for differences in purchasing power, even allowing for the fact that a haircut is way cheaper in 19th century China than in London, even allowing for that, you still find that by the 1970s, the average American is more than 20 times richer than the average Chinese. That's the great divergence. And that's part of what my book tries to explain, but only part. Because it wasn't just economic. This is just about much more than economics. In 1500, there were about 10 European countries that accounted for maybe 10% of the world's land surface, and they were quite densely populated, so 16% or thereabouts, uh, of the world's population. These same countries, plus the United States, by 1913, accounted for, if you include the empires that they had acquired, 
58% of the world's land surface, 59% of its population, and a staggering 79%, call it four-fifths, of the entire output of the global economy. And notice how unequally that economic output was divided between the imperial metropoles and their colonial peripheries. Fully 61% of global economic output was accounted for by those Western imperial metropoles. So that is as much a part of my story of great divergence as the story of income disparities. Why? Why, a hundred years ago, could somebody like me confidently sit in the hill station of Shimla as a member of the Indian Civil Service and expect to be waited upon hand and foot by a huge retinue of Indian servants? Why? Why did this great divergence happen? Bear in mind that it had not been on the cards in 1400. If you had gone on a world tour 600 years ago in the year 1411, you would not have put your money on Londoners or the inhabitants of Lisbon, much less the primitive peoples of central Scotland. And we can be quite primitive If there are any book reviewers here, I just want to make that clear. You know, there are no new questions. And in some ways, I'm just putting more crudely what Samuel Johnson put much more elegantly in his great novel, The History of Rosellus, Prince of Abyssinia. Uh, There's an exchange between Rosellus and his philosopher advisor in that book that gets you right to the heart of the subject. By what means, the prince asks, are the Europeans thus powerful? Or why, since they can so easily visit Asia and Africa for trade or conquest, cannot the Asiatics and Africans invade their coasts, plant colonies in their ports, and give laws to their natural princes? The same wind that carries them back would bring us thither. And Imlac replies... They are more powerful, sir, than we, because they are wiser. Knowledge will always predominate over ignorance as man governs the other animals. But why their knowledge is more than ours, I know not what reason can be given but the unsearchable will of the supreme being. Well, I think that's a great question, but I'm not sure Imlax is a great answer. At least... Part of what I want to do in this book is offer a better answer than that. And here it is. I told you it was going to be nerdy. And now I want to make an apology. One of the reasons that I wrote this book was to try to engage the interests of teenagers, two in particular, uh, who are my children. It was my realization that they were not really getting history the way I got it at their age that impelled me to write the book. I have to say I was a little disturbed when I realized that my daughter, who is 15, 
knew who Martin Luther King Jr. was, but not who Martin Luther was. And so I thought, something is going wrong in our schools. They do know a lot about Henry VIII and, and Hitler and Martin Luther King Jr., but that does seem to be all that they know about. They have no idea which came first. You think I'm kidding? Read the introduction to the book, which shows survey data on students reading history at a British university that will remain nameless, who genuinely do not know any of the things that you, if you're aged, let's say, over 30, kind of take for granted that an ordinary, well-educated person would know. For example, which order did the following things happen? The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution. A well-educated person should know that. Virtually nobody who leaves a British secondary school today knows that. So the reason that I have the killer apps is to try to engage the interest of a generation that is terrifyingly ignorant of history. And if it annoys you that I call them killer apps, I'm sorry. There were these six things. You could call them whatever you like. That made the West different from the rest from around 1500. And I'm going to talk about them in a little more detail this evening to try to explain to you why this is the best answer I can give to Rosellus's question. The first is competition. Competition not only in the economic sphere, but in the political sphere. Pluralism is another word for the same idea. The second is, is science. To be precise, the scientific revolution. I grew up in a family of scientists. I am, in fact, the black sheep of the family. My sister is the serious one. She works on the physics of cell membranes. I cannot understand the titles of the papers that she publishes. I fell by the wayside. And this is my atonement for that Fall. I acknowledge here, Sister Kate, that science was one of the West's killer apps. That the fact that Isaac Newton was European mattered hugely. The third killer app is one that if... Are there any lawyers here tonight? Don't be embarrassed. Put up your hand if you're a lawyer. Far too busy, most of them, fleecing innocent members of the public. <laughs> Why should bankers get all the stick? Let's give, let's give it to the lawyers, too. No, actually, credit where it's due. The rule of law is another of the killer apps of Western civilization. In particular... The notion that the rule of law should be based on private property rights and that from that basis, a system of representative government should emerge. That is a killer app as potent 
as the scientific method developed in the 17th century. My dad's a doctor. Medicine evolved differently from physics later. And so, although it's tempting to lump them together, you shouldn't. Actually, what happened in the late 19th century in the sphere of bacteriology is a completely distinct revolution from the revolution that produced the laws of motion. It's a killer app because it's not a killer. Medicine had been a killer up until the great breakthroughs of the 19th and early 20th century. From that point on, Western medicine had the power to more than double human life expectancy. One of the ways in which the Great Divergence expresses itself is that by the 19th century, by the late 19th century, Europeans have a life expectancy roughly double that of Asians. Think of that. Think of what that means. To have your expectation of death in the low 30s, as opposed to in the 60s and beyond, the 70s. So it's a killer app for the paradoxical reason that it keeps you alive. The fifth was really for my teenage daughter. Shopping is something people like to do. I don't, but that's because I am a stereotypical, mean Scotsman. But in my capacity as the bank of dad, I recognize how much my children like to shop. That is historically significant. It's serious and important. Why? Because without a consumer society in which people buy clothes week after week, there could not be an industrial revolution. You know how boring the industrial revolution can seem if somebody tries to explain to a class of 16-year-olds how a spinning jenny worked? They all glaze over like that. But if you explain to them that the point of a spinning jenny was to make clothes really cheap and readily affordable so that even teenagers in the London of the 1900s could aspire to go shopping, if you make it clear that the whole point of the Industrial Revolution is that the human appetite for clothing is almost infinitely elastic, (laughs) unlike, say, the human appetite for spices, I mean, how many cloves can you get through in a year? Not that many. But how many clothes can you get through in a year? There is no limit except the size of your wardrobe. And even that, as my daughter regularly proves, is not a constraint. (laughs) So the consumer society is a killer app. Once you have a culture in which everybody expects to own loads of these things, you know, just lots of them, then it's rational to produce lots of them. And once you produce lots of them, you employ people who then can afford to go, you've got it, shopping. The consumer society is the thing more than the factory system. It was the rise of the consumer society in England that transformed the economic model and created the model that we know today of an industrial society. Finally, I am a workaholic. There should be a Workaholics Anonymous that I go to 
but I'm too busy. (laughs) People review my books and they say, how does Neil Ferguson write so many books? He must have a team of slaves in Cambridge, Massachusetts who write them for him. These people who write these reviews are clearly lazy people (laughs) who cannot imagine that one person could, in fact, quite easily write a book every two years if that person worked seven days a week and got up at 6.30 a.m. Workaholism. It's a funny thing. Where did that come from? Medieval peasants weren't workaholics. Medieval peasants worked only when they absolutely had to. The rest of the time, they lay around in a state of malnutrition. It's true. Most people had no energy in the Middle Ages except for the very rich. This is one of the things that is right about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So those are the killer apps. My challenge to you is, at the end of my talk this evening, can you think of something I have missed? Or can you get rid of one of them and say, no, there's only one that really mattered? That's my challenge to you. I have spent years trying to figure out the answer to Rosellus's question, and I cannot get it down to less than six. When I talk about competition in the first film and the first chapter, what I really have in mind is the fact that in medieval England, the monarch was relatively weak, a lot weaker than his counterpart in China. The Chinese emperor was so powerful that after the death of the Yongle emperor, his successor could simply prohibit all oceanic voyages. Like that. Stop. Admiral Zheng He, it's over. Nobody was that powerful in medieval Europe. In fact, medieval monarchs were relatively weak. And nowhere weaker, actually, than England, where they had to endure the extraordinary audacity of a bunch of merchants engaged in trade organizing themselves into a more or less autonomous thing called a corporation. The fact that such an entity could exist in the 12th century tells you something important about the fragmentation of European polities. The existence of more or less self-governing communities or corporations throughout the English body politic was a guarantee that there would be competition in economic and political life. Sometimes that competition was very unhealthy as in the Wars of the Roses. Sometimes it was very healthy indeed. As when multiple corporations on the western seaboard uh, of Eurasia sought to compete for trade in the Atlantic and in the Indian Oceans. Compare the fragmented nature of the European policies of the Middle Ages with the monolithic structure of the Chinese system of government. The Chinese civil service examination was an extraordinary institution designed to create a homogenous administrative system. This picture here shows you the old imperial examination center at Nanjing, 
I've been in one of those examination cells. They're about the size of this lectern. You kind of sit down like this in a cubicle. It's a little bit like being in the loo, except that you have to spend three days in there writing incredibly complex Confucian poetry and memorizing hundreds upon hundreds of different characters. Nothing like this existed in Europe. On the contrary, there was constant fragmentation and fissiparity throughout the economic and political institutions uh, of Western Europe. So that's part one. I want you to realize that history is about people. It's not just about killer apps. So let me tell you about one of the people I bet you've never heard of. I bet you've never heard of Benjamin Robbins. You should have, but you haven't. Benjamin Robbins wrote a book called New Principles of Gunnery in 1742. He was a self-taught Newtonian mathematician. He invented, among other things, the ballistic pendulum. He did this while working as a military engineer for the, Indian, uh, the East India Company. The supreme irony of his life was that he was a Quaker. Why? Because Robbins was the man who applied Newtonian physics to artillery. Once you apply Newtonian physics to flying projectiles, you make your guns accurate. They hit the target mostly. Robbins understood what a revolution his book represented. He gave a lecture at the Royal Society in which he said, quote, whatever state shall thoroughly comprehend the nature and advantages of rifled barrel pieces and having facilitated and completed their construction shall introduce into their armies their general use with the dexterity and the management of them, they will by this means acquire a superiority which will almost equal anything that has been done at any time by the particular excellence of any one kind of arms. He was right. By having a scientific revolution, Europeans not only understood how the planetary bodies moved, they not only understood gravity, they also were able to hit the target with their guns. If there is one thing that explains the decline of the Ottoman Empire relative to its European counterparts, this is it. Because the scientific revolution, although it wasn't that far away physically from Istanbul, did not happen in the Islamic world at all. Despite the great traditions of Muslim science from the days of the 10th century Abbasid Caliphate. There's a wonderful figure I introduce in the book, Ibrahim Mutiferika, who was actually an ethnic Hungarian, but like all Ottoman officials, a convert to Islam. He finally and belatedly persuaded the sultans to allow the printing press. For the first time, the printed word existed in the Ottoman Empire in 1729. Think how much later that was than in Europe. One of the first things that Mutiferika published had the title, Rational Bases for the Politics of Nations. And he answered the Rasselas question. Why do Christian nations, which were so weak in the past compared with Muslim nations, begin to dominate so many lands in modern times and even defeat the once victorious Ottoman armies? Answer, 
because they have laws and rules invented by reason. The scientific revolution plus the later enlightenment provided the killer app of science to government. The third killer app, as I suggested to you, was the lawyer's killer app of property rights. Compare and contrast Boneyard Beach, South Carolina. Showed up there any time after the early 1600s. No gold, no silver, no great population of Indians to enslave. Just what you see in this picture. Compare that with what the conquistadors found when they got to Peru. Vast valleys like this, rich in precious metal and teeming with Indians to enslave and exploit. The fundamental difference between North and South America, which is the central theme of chapter 3, is that property rights evolved in a radically different way in the north compared with the south. Let me illustrate what I mean. Following the theory that John Locke had enunciated uh, in his two treatises of government and his constitution that he drew up for the colonies of Carolina, it was decided that everybody who came to the British colonies in North America, even if they came as indentured servants, got land. 100 acres, or maybe just 50, but they got land. They might have to work five years for it, but they got land. And the land gave them the vote. Most American colonies in the pre-revolutionary period had a franchise based on land ownership. But you could get the land. If you worked, you got it. Nothing like that happened in South America. And here's the result. By 1910 the percentage of rural households that owned land in Venezuela was 1.1%. Land ownership was concentrated in a tiny number of hands. Vast latifundia, like that valley I showed you a minute ago, and hardly any small proprietors. In the United States, 75% of rural households owned land, and it was even higher in Canada. It's very relevant to what is happening in the Middle East today, ladies and gentlemen. It is hard to build that complex thing we call democracy without the bedrock of a property-owning middle class. And that was what was created in North America, and that was what did not emerge in the South. In case you're the kind of person who falls asleep during lectures... I want to reassure you of two things. One, I'm going to speed up. And two, you'll get to ask me difficult questions soon. My fourth killer app was medicine. One of the things that is often forgotten about the European empires, which have been subjected to very severe criticism in recent decades, is that among the things they spread to Africa and other regions of the world was modern medicine. These are Senegalese tirailleurs, soldiers in the French colonial army, showing off their samples because they were part of a Belhartia research experiment. If you look 
at the demographic transitions in French colonies, as this chart does, this is another nerdy chart, but it's actually incredibly interesting. It's amazing. It's amazing. Look at this. This shows the change in life expectancy at birth from 1930 to very recently, to 2000. And what you'll notice, if you look closely, is that the transition, in fact, begins between 1930 and 1960. It was in the period of colonial rule that finally, belatedly, African and Asian societies escaped from the life expectancy of 20 or 30 years that had been the norm throughout their previous history. And once again, the killer app of medicine, the killer app that doubled life expectancy, was a Western killer app. Japan was the first non-Western society to get it, to realize that you could not beat them, you had to join them. And what is fascinating about Meiji Japan in the late 19th century is that they copied almost everything. The way Westerners cut their hair, the way Westerners dressed, the way Westerners brushed their teeth, the way they danced, they copied everything. Because they didn't know what the killer apps were. So they copied everything and hoped that they would get the killer apps that way, and they did. One of the things they copied was Western approaches to textile production, including the revolutionary Singer sewing machine that liberated women around the world from the drudgery of having to sew everything by hand. And there they are, stitching away, shock workers of Japan's Industrial Revolution. The world now dresses, with few exceptions, the way we do. Compare a Mongolian woman of 100 years ago to these Chinese chicks I snapped in Wenzhou. The westernization of dress is the supreme triumph, in many ways, of the killer app of the consumer society. Now, you'll notice my argument subtly shifting. When we get to the final killer app, the work ethic, it will begin to strike you that what I'm describing to you is a dynamic and not a static process. This chart shows you how many hours people work in a year, from 1950 to last year. And it shows a range of countries, European, the United States, and Asian. If you were one of my Harvard classes, I'd ask one of you to comment on this chart, but that's not polite, and we're in Chelsea. So let me tell you. Europeans work less and less and less. Asians work more than we do. Each year, they work relatively more than we do. That really matters. What has happened is that the work ethic that was once associated with the West, by Max Weber associated specifically with the Protestant West, has been downloaded by the rest. And indeed, we appear to have deleted it which you can do with apps. You know, we, we deleted the Protestant ethic in this, in this country somewhere between the 1960s and now. But it has not been deleted in China. 
Indeed, one of the most amazing things that I reveal in this book and in this television series is that simultaneously with the rise of a work ethic in Asia, Protestant Christianity is on the rise too. This is one of countless red neon crosses you see if you drive through Wenzhou at night. The fastest growing religion in China is Protestant Christianity. We visited when we were filming the biggest Bible factory in the world in China. Most Bibles are now manufactured there, and many of them are for use in China. You see, I hope, where I'm going with this. You see, our software, our killer apps, were essentially open access. Anybody could download them. The Japanese were the first two, but now, ladies and gentlemen, more or less everybody has. More or less. To varying degrees. Maybe not all of them. But they can, if they want, download all six. The Industrial Revolution was the thing, probably, that catapulted the West furthest ahead in economic terms of the rest. Britain's Industrial Revolution increased... Britain's economy in size by a factor of four in the course of 70 years. China's Industrial Revolution, in the space of 26 years, has increased China's economy in size by a factor of 10. We are living through the biggest and the fastest Industrial Revolution of them all. In some ways, it helps to download the apps after they were invented. You can modify them, improve them, make them more powerful. The result is that we are witnessing in our lifetimes, on our watch, a shift in economic power not seen for 500 years. For half a millennium, the West ascended. It's over. On our watch. Our share of the world economy is declining. China's, as this chart shows, is rising. According to Goldman Sachs, China's will be the biggest economy in the world by 2027. I think it will be sooner than that. And these projections are not the stuff of fantasy. It's happened before. Suppose we had had this meeting 100 years ago, in this very hall, and I had said to you, ladies and gentlemen, Japan will overtake the United Kingdom within this century you would have laughed at me. But I would have been right. Because as you can see from this chart, in about 1964, when I was born, Japan became a bigger economy than the United Kingdom. Is it not equally plausible that China will become a bigger economy than that of the United States? In 1950, people like us, the overwhelming majority of people in this room, white Western people, accounted for about a fifth, 20% of the world's population. By 2050, we will account for about a tenth. The demographics are really clear and powerful. 
I began by showing you this chart up to 1978. And I showed you that by 1978, the average American was 20 times richer than the average Chinese. This chart carries the story forward to now. Now, the divergence has dramatically diminished. Now, the average American is less than five times richer than the average Chinese. Project that trend forward. Look how steeply it falls, that blue line. We're living through the great reconvergence of the world economy. It's something so extraordinary, so beyond our expectation after 500 years of predominance that most people are in denial about it. And so they come up with arguments like, ah, well, you know, people said that about Japan and it didn't happen. Paul Kennedy wrote that in the 1980s and it didn't happen. I want to persuade you that this is not really a projection. It's a description of our present reality. They're downloading our apps. And they're not even paying. We were asked to look into what accounted for the preeminence of the West all over the world. This is from a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. Surprised? You should be. The extent to which the rest, and particularly the Asian rest, have been studying us, trying to figure out what it was that led the West to dominate the rest is truly impressive. When I first taught this course at Harvard, I gave it the title Western Ascendancy, Mainsprings of Global Power. I thought that had a good ring to it. I swear half the students who enrolled for that course were Chinese. For them, I wasn't teaching history. It was a playbook. But you know, and this is my final point, it is harder than it looks. To download that bundle of applications that we call Western civilization is not easy. What is happening right now in North Africa and the Middle East is a revolution that may prove to be as great in its significance as the revolution that began in France in 1789 or in Russia in 1917. We don't know. But what we do know from the history of those revolutions, which I do discuss at some length in the book, is how hard it is for a revolutionary wave to break happily onto a beach of Western-style democracy. That rarely, rarely occurs. 1989 in Central and Eastern Europe may well be the exception to a rule. Our demand, freedom. He's got the right idea, ladies and gentlemen. It is fundamentally about freedom. The freedom of thought, the freedom of speech, the freedom to conduct research, that might contravene the teachings of some religious tract. 
the freedom to meet. All the killer apps that I've described to you work best when they're accompanied by individual freedom. But to leap violently to that freedom without the killer apps, that, ladies and gentlemen, very, very seldom ends well. Watch it, buy it, download it. Thank you very much indeed. Now we have time for questions, and there are microphones, uh, roving mics. I don't know why that always makes me think of, I don't know, men on a Saturday night. <laughs> roving mics are in the hall, roving around. There's a gentleman there in a white shirt. Can, it, can, a, can a mic rove towards him? Yes, sir. Thank you. My name is Jeremy Drax. The question I pose to you is uh, a proposition that the Chinese, the biggest problem the Chinese are going to face in the future is its demographic problem. People are constrained to one child per family, and at the moment they have an astonishing growth rate. But as the population ages, an increasingly smaller population of workers is going to be supporting an increasingly aging population. Is this a problem that you foresee, and is it going to be China's nemesis? Question. Thanks for that. Excellent question. Most demographers who look at China recognize that there is a huge problem looming. The one-child policy at one level worked. It did achieve the objective of raising China's per capita income in a way that India was unable to replicate, but it did so through draconian infringements of individual liberty, which to us are almost unimaginable. The unintended consequence is, of course, that as... 20 years or so go by, China's demographic structure will in some ways begin to look like that of Western Europe, where the ratio of elderly dependence to people of working age will start to rise. And China's economy will grow slower for that reason. We already see some manifestations of this in rising wages for relatively skilled workers in China. Labor shortages are actually becoming a reality in some sectors of the Chinese economy. That's not entirely bad because Chinese workers do need to be paid more in order to become consumers to reduce the dependence of China's economy on us. The other thing to remember is that having an elderly population is much less damaging economically if you don't have an excessively generous welfare state designed for a previous era, which Western countries do and the Chinese don't. It's highly unlikely that the Chinese are going to introduce anything like the 1960s-style welfare systems uh, of the Western world. That means that many elderly Chinese will be very poor. Do you think that's something Chinese society can handle? I do. And in that sense, I don't think we should exaggerate the ticking demographic time bomb. We should expect China's economy to grow more slowly, but there won't be the kind of fiscal crisis that European countries are heading for, indeed, in some cases, are already in, that even the United States, with its high immigration rate, uh, is heading for. The real demographic imbalance that worries me is actually the imbalance in the sex ratio. 
One of the unintended consequences of the one-child policy was uh, an old tradition taken to a new extreme of selective female infanticide and abortion. And there are some provinces in China where there's uh, 30% more males than females. A much more interesting question to me is who those men will marry. Or to put it differently, where they will go in search of some marital action. And this is going to be a profound challenge to one of the most profound assumptions of Chinese society, which is ethnic or racial homogeneity. So watch that space perhaps more closely than the space of the elderly, who I fear will just be condemned to a rather miserable poverty a generation hence. Thanks, that's a great question. Do we have a question over here? There's a microphone being waved right from the back. Yes, please. Um, I was just wondering what you thought may happen when the Chinese ask for the minimum wage and the like. When the Chinese labour force, I mean, ask for the minimum wage. Yeah. Well, as I said in, in my last answer... Upward pressure on wages is something that, in fact, the regime wants and needs. The the new five-year plan is about increasing the importance of consumption to China's economy. Currently, it's a tiny share of China's GDP. It's incredible how small the share is, because China's economy is an investment-propelled planned economy at heart. And the Chinese know that this is unsustainable. It's one of the four uns that they talk about. So it won't be surprising if we see wages moving upwards with some official encouragement. It also addresses the problem of this supposedly undervalued currency. But this gets a little nerdy, and I don't want to lose you. Have you noticed, by the way, that all the questions have been about the future so far? This is one of the things that historians constantly grapple with. They spend ages talking about the past, and then they have to talk about the future, as if they knew about it. I just want to make one very important point that I make in the introduction of the book. There is one past that happened. We struggle to know exactly what it was, but there really is only one. There are multiple futures. And we collectively will choose the one that happens. But the outcome will not be one necessarily that we expect. So when you ask me about the future There's no such thing as the future singular. There are futures. Yes, China could conceivably experience a jasmine revolution. I think that's wishful non-thinking on the part of Western journalists, myself, but I could be wrong. I'd say there was a low probability that at some point in the next few years, China could be derailed by social unrest. It's a future. It's a plausible future. But I think it's a low probability one. Anyone want to ask about the past? <laughs> the front row deserves, by dint of being the front row, the microphone, uh, there's a gentleman very near you there who should perhaps be first. Thank you. I was just wondering, isn't democracy one of the killer apps? Or is that more the iPad that we, we use the, the applications through? I mean, you've touched upon it, but I just think, isn't that just something that's fundamentally true of our history, but not necessarily of the other areas? Well, this is a great question, Anna. Very important one. Democracy is a luxury good. Maybe it is a kind of iPad, that that gadget that you get last. Because it doesn't work 
if you only have elections. If you simply say the killer app is giving everybody the vote, then you're missing something really important, which is why I very deliberately don't have democracy as one of the killer apps. The killer app that really mattered, that made democracy work in Western uh, countries, was the complex of private property rights and the rule of law. For most of this country's history, there were elections, but they were not democratic because the franchise was a function of property ownership, just as Locke and his disciples had envisaged. It was property ownership that qualified you to vote. So to say that democracy is the killer app is almost as anachronistic as to say that feminism was a killer app. Part part of our trouble when we talk about Western civilization is that we don't realize how many ways it changed in relatively recent times. It's only really in the past century that most Western societies moved towards universal suffrage, and some did it very reluctantly. It was only even more recently than that, since the 1960s, that most Western societies moved in the direction of equality of the sexes under the law. So no, I don't think those are killer apps. If we're trying to explain a great divergence that began as long ago as 1500 and reached its zenith in 1913, it can't be democracy. It is representative government, but representative government on the basis of private property rights and the rule of law. That's the killer app. Let's have another question. There's a lady on the second row here. I'm doing my best to appear incredibly even-handed, right there in the middle. She needs a microphone. Yes, madam. I'm sorry about looking forward again. Um, What would your six killer apps be for the West for the future? These ones. We need to reinstall them and reboot ourselves. I'm serious. What most disturbs me about our society, and I see this particular society with new eyes. I've been away a lot. I've come back this academic year been based in London at the London School of Economics, which I'm hugely enjoying. I see it with fresh eyes. And what strikes me is the extent to which we don't even recognize the importance of the things I'm talking about. We take them for granted, or in some cases, we actively disrespect them. Just take science. And look at the ways in which British kids study. Do you know that within the OECD... British children spend the longest period of time, on average, in formal education. And yet, when you look at what is studied, particularly at the university level, it is dispiriting how little hard science is getting done. So, when you look at my six killer apps, those are the killer apps we need. And my God, we need to reinstall them, urgently. We need to reinstall our faith in all six of these things, including, of course, I had to say this, the work ethic, if we're going to cut it this century. I don't think, for example, that the average 17-year-old realizes that there are 40 Chinese 17-year-olds working 11 hours a day, seven days a week, to have the lifestyle that he, the British 17-year-old, expects as his birthright. That is the thing that I'm trying in this book to convey. The extent to which the competition is real and now. It's not about the future. It's about today. 
And unless we reignite our faith in Western civilization and stop apologizing for it and saying, oh gosh, we're terribly sorry, and treating the last 500 years as if they are primarily things that we should say sorry for, then I think we are going to come very badly unstuck this century. Let me take a question from this side of the room. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to look in the past. Uh, I'm surprised you don't make more of the absence of constraining religion or philosophy, because I think that could be the basis of a lot of the apps you raise. So um, property rights, a legal system, a consumer society, science are all related to uh, freedom of, um, from, from a constraining religion. Well, this is, of course, a, a very important part of the story, just to give you one illustration. I spend a lot of time thinking about, about Weber's theory of the Reformation and its significance. In, in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Weber argues that it was the Reformation that made people for the first time, work as a way of demonstrating their godliness and save money as a way of demonstrating their membership of the elect. And so he, he argued that there was a kind of drive, the unintended consequence of which was economic growth. I'm not sure that's quite right. What I think is crucial is, first of all, before the Reformation, the separation of church and state. That fundamental concept render unto Caesar, is absent in other religions and particularly conspicuously absent in Islam. The other crucial difference, which is where the Reformation really matters, is literacy. The Reformation is a phenomenon made possible by the printing press. Attempts to challenge the authority of the Pope had failed before, but with the printing press they went viral. What is really striking about Luther is that he uses the printing press the way we today would like to see revolutionaries use the internet or Facebook. His words, his sermons, or Lucas Cranach's woodcuts, spread throughout Central Europe with incredible speed. And what we notice is that where printing presses existed and literacy rose so too did economic development improve. It's even better. There's some great research which I'm able to summarize in my book by a Ameri young American scholar that shows that wherever Protestant missionaries went, literacy improved. Because the first thing you do as a Protestant missionary in China, first thing you do is you translate the Bible into the vernacular and you start printing it. And within an amazingly short period of time, places that underwent that experience saw economic improvements that were absent where there were no Protestant missionaries. So religion is a very important part of my story. And at the end, in the final chapter, I noticed that there's a correlation, very close correlation, between the decline of working hours in Europe and the decline of religious belief. They fall in lockstep from the 1960s. It's uncanny. Now, I have some skin in this game as an atheist. But I'm an atheist historian who's noticed that atheism has been a very poor 
model for utopian experiments. The great atheist regimes of the 20th century did a great deal more harm than good. And I've come to sympathize in ways I would never have predicted 10 years ago with, with what Christianity has to offer. So yeah, yeah, religion is a really important part of it. And that's why in the final chapter, which I, which I call rather deceptively the work ethic, it's really the ethic that's the important word. And of course, it's a word ethic, not a work ethic. The gentleman in the front row has been very patient. There's somebody who's waving an arm towards the back who will be next. Waving works. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd like to put in a word for laziness and art. Um, there's a, a pretty dreadful um, European subsidised arts channel on, on the news called Euronews, which is as bad as you might expect, but it has a programme on it called um, Arts, Culture, Lifestyle. And to go back to the past, uh, I wonder if you've ever heard of something called the Honda NSX. It's the last attempt made by Japan to build a supercar. And I think one of the problems about China and this sort of tendency, there are lots of bad things I, I agree with you about our failure to do certain kinds of work in the West, losing our values. But we have something that I don't think has been emerging at all in Japan. It's a wonderful, rich culture, but it is not exported that culture. What it's exported is excellent goods. Um, I own a Toyota that I inherited from my father, which just won't stop going. But the Honda NSX, in attempting to imitate the European supercar, failed miserably. Not because it isn't brilliant in some ways, but it lacks Italian flair. It lacks um, the qualities that exist in an Aston Martin or a Jaguar. And you know, there are plenty of competitions for the iPod, which is just as technically good coming out of yeast. But if you like arts, culture, lifestyle, there needs to be a kind of new word to describe those, which partly involves the Sistine Chapel problem, which you talked about, saying that that's something that we do have, laziness. Our kids sit around, certainly um, bad in all sorts of ways, and they make music. They create extraordinarily and wealth-creating ideas, as you showed in your, your photograph. It's this arts culture lifestyle aspect that nobody else has been able to come even close to. And I wonder, in a sense, why um, I take the point about the Sistine Chapel stuff, the kind of high-mindedness, that this is also a hugely um, important economic aspect about the goods we make. They have a strange richness that no one else has even begun to come close to, and I would invoke the history of the NSS as, as an example. Well, that was a wonderfully unlazy question, if I may say so. <laughs> um, one of the things that Americans say to me when I talk about my fears for the futures, plural, is, oh, Neil, relax. Look at this thing. Just, just look at that. Designed by Apple in California. Assembled in China. As if that ends the argument. As if it doesn't really matter as long as we are cool with our design. Whatever else 
we have got the culture section and they have not. It's not quite the same as the Maxim gun, but it's that kind of self-reassuring story. We are the creators of intellectual property, and all they do is assemble our cool ideas. I mean, I'm caricaturing what you're saying, but I've, I've heard it said in less sophisticated ways than you just put it. We've got the style. We've got the flair. And they just bolt things together in their sweatshops. Now, that's a very tempting story. Oh, it doesn't matter, Dad. I don't need to get up yet as long as I have one brilliant idea by lunchtime. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was interested in this hypothesis. I'm, I'm a data guy. I like... I just have an empirical approach to problems, which I'm sure I owe to my parents' scientific background. So I I thought, okay, how can we actually test this proposition about innovation as something that we do really well in the West? So I went and I looked for measures of innovation. One of them is patent applications and patents being granted. And it's interesting to notice that Japan actually has led the West in terms of patents granted, for decades. And China overtook Germany, I think, last year. When I told a group of German industrialists that they had been overtaken in the innovation race by the Chinese, there was a kind of ghastly silence. They assumed my numbers must be wrong. It's true. Now, you can argue about whether patents are a good measure of innovation, and, of course, many patents... Uh, that are applied for and granted in Asia are just like, you know, tweaks to an existing gizmo. They're not exactly as path-breaking as others. But having said all that, there is now no question that in terms of raw innovation, the Chinese have moved far, far away from merely being an assembly line for Steve Jobs. And if you kid yourself that that is all that is going on in China right now, you are going to be very, very surprised indeed very soon. They are investing far more than the West in research and development in green energy. They are ahead, embarrassingly far ahead, when it comes uh, to transportation infrastructure, high-speed rail. That seems to me as important and maybe more important than the point that they can't design something as cool as a supercar. I mean, a TVR is a very cool vehicle, if you don't mind it breaking down the whole time. And the number of people employed to make these beautiful vehicles that break down the whole time is tiny compared with the number of people employed to churn out reliable vehicles in Asia. So my sense is that we, we may be kidding ourselves a bit here. Even the, the film industry kids itself a little bit at Oscar night. They kid themselves because the Asian film market has exploded in size and I think that some of the most beautiful films that I have seen in the past decade have actually been Chinese-made films, more innovative in terms of their use of cinematography than anything coming out of the West. Hai Weiwei is an artist who is as innovative as any artist living in the West today, so innovative that the Chinese authorities were constrained to destroy his entire studio in Shanghai just a couple of months ago. Art, they got it. They got more of it than we know. Cinema, you bet. 
And in that sense, we've got to be aware that innovation is not something we monopolize. Currently, it's clear that American universities are hubs for innovation like no others. You probably didn't go to watch The Social Network because you wanted to see a film about royals that sentimentalized their elite, privileged, and ghastly lifestyle. <laughs> but I liked The Social Network because it was about the kind of people I teach who are, yeah, kind of slightly obnoxious. You know, you, there wasn't a single person in The Social Network that you could like. Whereas Colin Firth had his organ. Oh, God, he's, he can speak. Oh, it's so t- <laughs> He can actually speak English. It's amazing. But you know what? There are nerds in China. There are more nerds at the University of Peking or its Shanghai counterpart than there are at any British university. And if you want to guess where the next really big innovation will come in the software space... I wouldn't be at all surprised if it came from the East rather than from the West Coast. It was a long answer, but it was a long question. I'm going to give a short answer to the waiver. The waiver has the microphone. Yes, sir. Uh, Good evening, Neil. Um, You showed us a graph earlier which um, displayed Japan's economic, um, literally meteoric uh, development. Why is it that Japan is the only Asian country that's achieved that so far, how have they applied the killer apps and what circumstances allowed them to do that? And why do they differ from, for example, India and China? Yeah. Well, this is a great question. J- Japan started earlier. Japan was the first, and by a long way, the first Asian country to uh, adopt the industrial model. From the late 19th century, Japan was uh, beating other Asian competitors hands down in textile production. The Japanese took a wrong turning because they decided that having an empire must be a killer app. This is a really important point. Because many people say, no, 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 no. Not the kind of people who come to an event like this, but maybe the kind of people that you, you might encounter in Islington. <laughs> no, 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 it's all imperialism, isn't it? You know, it's just like the reason that the West dominated the rest was they exploited them with imperialism. That was the killer app, and it was a killer, Neil. They killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, every, every great civilization has produced empires. The least original thing about the ascent of the West was imperialism. It's in no way a unique application. So what the Japanese got wrong was that they looked to the West and they thought, oh, it's their empire, we should get one of those. So they began to get one of those, and in the process of getting one of those, they completely destroyed themselves for a generation. And then in 1945, they looked around the smoldering ashes of their country and they said, maybe that wasn't it. Let's try it without the empire and see how that goes. And it went fantastically well. The Japanese miracle of the post-war period is an exact forerunner of every single Asian miracle since. It begins with textile exports and heavy industry, iron, steel, shipbuilding. And then it moves up the value chain. And then South Korea did it, and Singapore did it, and they all essentially did it, and China did it. And finally, after 91, the Indians 
took a similar though not identical route. South Asia is more about internal consumption than exports. East Asia is all about exports. And you can plot these trajectories if you take any indicator, let's say textile exports, for example, it's, it's just a matter of timing. The Asian model, the East Asian model is remarkably similar. It's almost fractal geometry. Singapore is a tiny version of what China is currently doing on a vast scale. So that's the answer. But Japan, of course, ran out of demographic road, partly because they were too successful in creating a welfare state that makes everybody live forever. Fantastically efficient welfare state, so they have very, very old population. Partly because they just won't have immigrants. If you have a society in which immigration is simply not possible and you limit your family size the way they have, you end up with what they have. Now, I don't want to outstay my welcome. That's always dangerous. It's now 20 past. I'm going to take two more questions, one after the other, and then wrap this up. Okay? So this is the moment of truth. (laughs) I'll take your question first, and then I'll take your question second. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you you can come and and ask me the question at the book signing. (laughs) People always do that anyway, so I might as well make it sound like I suggested it. Yes, madam. Uh, The question is, um, and this is Julie Meyer, um, is there maybe another killer app? You mentioned Luther, and part of what Luther is known for is that focus on the individual and his or her relationship with God. And is there not an undercurrent in the West over the past half millennium of a focus on the individual. If I think about maybe your students at the LSE, I've, I've noticed that today in the, the kind of under 30s, the, even the people that work in my company who are under 30 don't believe that they work for anyone anymore. They think of themselves as their own brand. They think of themselves as their own P&L. And so I'm wondering whether or not this is not one, one uh, kind of focus on the individual, which is separate from the killer apps you've, you've outlined, which actually is, is part of a potential future whereby I think we're stronger at the individual than the collective notion. Is that not part of how there's a better future in the West by continuing to focus on empowering the individual, this kind of individual capitalism, focus on the individual as a unit of capitalism? And entrepreneurship, I was interested, you haven't mentioned at all, and yet I think that's created wealth and is such an unbelievable force right now. Let me think about that. Take the second question and then wrap things up. Yes, sir, let me go to you. Um, you paint this rather menacing picture when you say it is the West history and uh, sort of the sunset of the, in the background. Um, I mean, is, is China a threat? I mean, it seems that... I mean, you say Japan was actually wrong in following the path of forming an empire. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting China's going to do that. But do you think China might be in some way a threat to the West and to, to its neighbors, generally? Thanks very much. These are two great questions to end on. You know, there are entrepreneurs in every society. Even in the poorest societies, the entrepreneurial gene will, will pop up. There's a great book, one of my favorite books, Gillespie, which is about an entrepreneur who has the misfortune to be born into an incredibly impoverished fishing village in the west of Scotland in the 19th century, but his entrepreneurial gene just will out 
even in the most unpropitious circumstances. And the same can be found all over the world. It's not entrepreneurship that matters. It's the institutional framework which allows the entrepreneur to take the idea and create the company and market the product. And without that institutional framework, which I link to competition, then being an entrepreneur will just make you really unpopular with your fellow villagers. That, that's generally the problem with being an entrepreneur in a simple agrarian society. They usually kill you at some point. You know, what you asked about individualism is such an exciting part of the story. I'm really happy you mentioned it. Do not delude yourself into thinking that Western civilization was always about individualism. What is fascinating about it is that in the course of the 18th and 19th century, ideologies evolved within Western civilization that were profoundly hostile to individualism. Rousseau, the most dangerous man to be produced by Western civilization, expressly says the individual should be subordinated to the general will. And that is a dreadful idea. But my God, it caught on. It's the basis for the French Revolution. It then becomes a part of Marx's vision, that other great perverter of Western civilization, Karl Marx, who says, no, no, this is all wrong. Individualism is evil. Capitalism is dreadful. We have to have equality. The will to subordinate the individual to the collective is incredibly powerful within our society. Remember that the Western civilization produced mutant versions of itself in the modern period. And these we also exported. What else is China's revolution of 1949? So no, we, we can't claim that individualism is a killer app, if only... The trouble is, we have a strong impulse to destroy that individual freedom ourselves, to create some collective value that is higher than the individual's freedom. That seems to be one of our curious defects. Maybe it's a virus that got into the killer apps after Rousseau. The final question is whether we should feel threatened. And this is a great point on which to conclude. Yeah. (laughs) Empires, as the British case illustrates, aren't always the result of carefully laid plans. Seeley famously said that the British acquired half the world in a fit of absence of mind. If you go to Africa today, travel in almost any African country, and you will see China acquiring an empire in a fit of absence of mind begins with the calculation, wow, these commodity prices are crazily volatile. We have to do something to secure our supplies of copper and iron ore. Rather than relying on the world market, why don't we own the mine and build the infrastructure and own the port too, maybe? That's the calculation with which all empires begin. Let's internalize the transaction and remove it from the market for a vital commodity. That is what China is doing right now. The Chinese have a treasure trove of about, treasure chest of about two to three trillion dollars of international reserves. They do not like the fact that so much of it is in the form of US dollars. They would far rather own copper mines in Zambia. They would far rather own arable land in Brazil or even in other parts of Asia. 
they would like to acquire technology companies in Norway. They are on a massive spending spree right now. Wherever you travel, you will see that process in action. Now, at some level, it's great. I would hate to think of the most populous country in the world remaining mired in the poverty that it was still in in the 1970s and had been in since the 1500s. But we should not have any illusions. A world in which the biggest economy for the first time since 1872 is not the United States. The United States, which for all its flaws has individual freedom enshrined in its constitution, but is instead the People's Republic of China, a one-party state which still has at its core that ideology of communism that emanated bizarrely from the British Library in this city? No, that does not strike me as a better world, at least not a better world for freedom, than the world I was born into. And on that somber note, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.